Namaste and welcome to the Bharat Vartha Weekly. I'm Roshan Karyappa. And as usual, I have our guests, Abhishek Paul, Nirav Kanodra and Prasanna Vishwanathan joining you on this weekly to give you news and perspectives on the week that was. So, hey everyone, thanks so much for joining and uh, we have plenty to discuss. Uh, we'll be talking about the Singapore Prime Minister's remarks on India and her politicians. Uh, of course, there was a bit of controversy on the Punjab's Chief Minister's uh, remark on migrants. Uh, and then there is this uh, ensuing controversy with uh, the historian Vikram Sampath and some of his other peers. Then the Russia-Ukraine crisis continues and there are some remarks by President Biden of the US as well uh, on that front. In more positive news, we have Nepal, which has become the first country outside of India to adopt UPI. So this is going to be a power-packed session. So stay tuned for all of the news and views. As usual, let's start with the episode that we put out last week. Uh, we had a live stream with Rohit Jairaman, who's a resident or political expert, and uh, Nimish Joshi. And uh, this was a fascinating uh, session. I mean, uh, the Punjab, uh, UP, Uttarakhand and Goa elections are you know, ongoing, upcoming, and uh, plenty of uh, nuances uh, there, right? Uh, so Abhishek, uh, what do you think about the live stream? Yeah, I listened to, I think, it got disconnected right so i hope the new episode is put out fully but uh, i think uh, punjab and uttarakhand partly was discussed right and it was really fascinating to hear rohit's insights on uh, punjab especially uh, so i think uh, the various factors contributing to uh, the current political situation including the relatively strong position that AAP is in right now was well highlighted. And also on Uttarakhand, he was, I think, I think really interesting insights on the demographics in the state uh, in terms of the difference between the plains and the hills, right? was very well explained. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was an interesting point for sure. Uh, all right. Do catch that episode. We're going to put an edited video out uh, shortly shortly, maybe today or tomorrow. And uh, do check out that episode if you haven't tuned into the live stream already. Uh, moving on to the first piece of news for this week. India has complained to Singapore about a remark its Prime Minister made on the number of Indian MPs. Uh, the Prime Minister Lee Shen Lung stated, Nehru's India has become one where almost half the MPs in the Lok Sabha have criminal charges pending against them. He also referred to a dilution of democratic ideals in India under Nehru to what it is today. India's main opposition Congress party, led by Nehru's great-grandson Rahul Gandhi, took the opportunity to extol its old leader and have a dig at its rivals. Nirav, as the resident Singaporean on the panel, you know, what do you make of this? So, actually, uh, we need to see in what context was this remark made. Uh, so, the background is that uh, there is one uh, MP from an opposition party. So, Lisi and Lung, the Prime Minister, is from the People's Action Party. Uh, and the opposition party, Workers' Party, has... Uh, one MP who apparently who has made a or is accused of making a white lie in the parliament that she mentioned she was at a place with uh, someone uh, where she wasn't actually present right so this is the context and uh, the ruling party is kind of raising this as an issue about like the ethics of uh, this particular MP or why hasn't she been dismissed by the leader of the opposition etc right so it is in that context where they're saying that the parliament should uh, have the highest ethical standards and even like a trivial white lie should not be kind of go unpunished. 
and in that context he is referred to say india where uh, a lot of the members of the parliament have uh, criminal charges against them right but like see uh, he is not trying to interfere anything in india and uh, put another thing in context like singapore got independence from uh, britain in 63 where it was a part of malaysia and then became fully independent in 65 and at that time uh, nehru was the prime minister of india from 1947 onwards and uh, india being one of the fir- the first country under the british raj which had taken independence uh, these leaders where the prime minister was a teenager did look up to india for like their democratic uh, progression and then continuous democracy right so i think that was one of the aspects second thing is as we do know that uh, even in nehru's parliament a lot of the mps were had gone to prison under the british government right or in uh, later on in 1975 in the emergency a lot of the non congress politicians were put in prison by our prime minister indira gandhi right so uh, a lot of politicians have been to prison a lot of times when somebody becomes successful a lot the other parties put criminal charges against them so they have been accused right but they may not be actually uh complicit so uh there is a very different context very different uh, thing and uh, finally i would say like see uh singapore has been an ally of india uh more strongly since the 1990s after india's liberalization we have a, a trade agreement with singapore which is a sika comprehensive economic cooperation agreement and we've had a trade agreement with asean right so uh and singapore has been an indian ally across different regimes right whether it has been uh congress party in power or bjp in power where he was commenting on a white lie made in the parliament right and it is that that he is comparing to um, maybe it's an unfortunate thing that india was compared in such a stage for a lot of other countries uh if you really look from the outside Uh, for a lot of asian countries india was looked at as one of the pioneers or one of the leaders and was looked up to earlier in the early uh, in the 40s 50s 60s right and then somewhere we all along the way we've lost our way economically and india is frankly it is looked down upon as under realizing its potential to be fair so what probably singapore government is alluding to is if we kind of tolerate these kind of white lies maybe we go down the path where like india has underperformed economically versus its potential right i don't know what is he thinking but we need to take this into context i would say it's not that uh, singapore is uh, looking to support any one party or another uh, and singapore itself has a law which prohibits foreign interference in its own politics right so uh, same thing like india w- wants to look at singapore as an ally regardless who's in power uh singapore looks at india as an ally regardless who's in power so i think that's what it is uh probably our uh, uh jay shankar our external affairs minister and the external affairs ministry has kind of seek some clarification hopefully this is just taken off as a misunderstanding and we move on uh, we have a lot of uh, indian citizens who live in singapore and a lot of indian ocis and uh, like people of indian origin indian ethnicity who are uh, living in singapore so it's a friendly nation and uh, i would say uh, don't attribute to like malice wherever you know you could say like this was uh, taken out of context or uh, yeah that's what it is yeah, yeah it's constantly 
agree with Meera. Only one point that I would like to make, like especially uh, the section of the Indian commentariat, which latched on to what the uh, you know the Singapore president said. See, let's look at the uh, you know the class composition and the social composition of the parliament, uh, the first Lok Sabha versus the um, the class and the social composition of the current Lok Sabha, or probably for the last two decades, the composition of the Lok Sabha. Uh, certainly the Indian democracy, right, uh, at the beginning of, during the independence and maybe at least 10-15 uh, uh, decades post the independence, uh, was a very elitist endeavor, actually. Uh, while if you really compare the, uh, you know, especially based on the demographic compositions of the last three, four Lok Sabha, it's, it's, I mean, you could look at it two ways. Like, see, this is actually a point that the same set of people who have latched on to uh, uh, Singapore president's uh, remarks are the ones who made this point. But surprisingly, you know, that this nuance doesn't come out now. Is like, you know, the current composition was celebrated as a deepening and strengthening of the Indian democracy, where you had the subaltern forces coming into the fore of the Indian democracy. And, uh, you know, this is more an attribute and any kind of comparison to those, uh, quote unquote, the parliament dominated by the founding fathers, a term that I'm deeply, uh, uh, you know, uh, find it offensive and uncomfortable. Uh, I mean, that that is like, uh, was supposed to be because it was a very elitist, uh, uh, you know, political framework at that time, you know, so it's, it's, it's I think like, I would think that maybe uh, the Singapore president uh, would have done well not to, uh, you know, wade into this controversy because, you know, I think the nuance is also uh, uh, very critical, especially when you're making the cross-country comparison. And the last thing is that, you know, this entire criminal, uh, see, of course, I'm sure there are like a few members who also face very, uh, serious uh, criminal charges, but a lot of these uh, quote-unquote criminal charges are like basically participation in political programs, uh, yeah. you know, like you are in an opposition in a particular state, you fight as a part of a movement or something like that, you are charged with criminal trespass, harsen, you know, all that stuff, which, which is not something, you know, probably a, a, a kind of managed democracy like Singapore permits. So, you know, it's, it's I think going down a very... Uh, I mean, I think generally as, uh, you know, as a friendly nation and, you know, which kind of uh, hosts a lot of uh, high quality human capital and we have like very deep business relationship. I think this kind of cross comparisons, maybe he made it in a particular context, but, you know, in a highly politicized and polarized political environment that prevails in country like India, it's sure to be picked up by... Uh, you know, uh, forces with vested interest, actually. I think this this nuance never comes out of the debate. Yeah, for sure. And I think it betrays a sense of naivety, right? I mean, what does it take to file an FIR in India, really? And, uh, no, no, sir, absolutely. So, exactly. The, yeah. the thing is, he spoke in a particular context, in a particular uh, setting, right? And uh, then, like, any statement taken out of context for some other thing uh, can be blown up. Uh, like India is so politically polarized that uh, everybody wants to comfortably say, oh, see, look at this. Uh, even if they are the party, say, for example, who has like uh, a larger percentage of people with criminal records or criminal cases against them. So that's what it is. I think like, yeah, India, all the people are like uh, democratically elected. 
in a free fair transparent manner as in so our elections are at least not tainted uh, yeah. it's unfortunate if the people do want someone who has either a criminal record or has cases against them uh, then uh, they do uh, win and second thing is like say leaders like lalu prasad yadav who has had a lot of uh, cases it has been barred right as there is a process that uh, that they cannot stand in elections uh, so there is a process for that so that is also uh, been taken care of right so uh, that's what it is yeah uh, i am so conflicted actually i want uh, minister jayashankar to respond and at the same time not respond also right i mean if he responds we'll have that 30 second or 40 second zinger right a very nice clip that uh, does the rounds on twitter and uh, so on right and also at the same time i think it's too minor for uh, like to merit a proper response really but one thing is that you know internationally i think uh, everyone prefers a more prefers a more docile india versus a sort of a strident india right i mean i don't think uh, anybody would have taken much notice of this maybe 10 15 years back right so yeah um all right moving on the punjab chief minister charanjit channi is in hot water after making a comment regarding migrants from neighboring states during a rally for his upcoming elections the current chief minister of punjab asked his people not to not let the to quote bhaiyas of uttar pradesh bihar and delhi rule the state the video went viral with the priyanka gandhi vadra seen beside chani clapping when he made these remarks the comment has drawn sharp criticism from both aap and bjp mr chani then issued a clarification and claimed that his statement was being misconstrued you also claimed that these remarks were aimed at the leadership of aap um abhishek this is not perhaps the first time that this sentiment has surfaced right i mean so what do you think about this yes so i think this sentiment of uh, looking at it is quite uh, popular in uh, i would say almost all states which are not in the hindi heartland right so you can go state by state almost and you will see right so take the recent example of uh, the bengal elections right so uh, this insider outsider game is it's a pretty easy low hanging fruit that uh, many political parties go to uh, and often then later on end up regretting as well or because uh, obviously these are not politically correct statements right so the fact that he had to sort of uh, backtrack a little bit shows that you know whatever he said is not what he should have been saying right but these kind of statements are quite common right if going back uh, in time also you can you can look at shiv sena in the 90 or 70s 80s 90s you can look at trinamool congress last 10 years so Uh, i'm sure prasanna can add examples from tamil nadu as well right so <laughs> these kind of statements are uh, they do keep coming uh, i think uh, people who actually do business or in case of punjab do big agriculture know the value of the migrants in their state and uh, i mean many of these states are pretty much reliant on uh, migrants coming and doing the bulk of labor right so their importance cannot be overstated actually so yeah it's pretty unfortunate i think uh, uh, political opponents of the congress party took 
good advantage of it uh, starting from the prime minister right so uh, i think he was rebutted well and uh, yeah it's it's just one of those statements that will keep coming during election times i think uh, i uh, kind of you know just want to add on i i think there are two issues here one is of course uh, we could always dismiss it as a election leave uh, rhetoric okay sometimes you know like basically uh, you kind of escalate the uh, uh, rhetoric in the run up to the election but i think there is also a deeper structural uh, uh, problem uh, in punjab uh, so so basically that uh, i mean it was actually not even a dog whistle uh, which some of this other political parties that indulge in uh, xenophobic uh, nativism do right this was like quite uh, blatant and brazen uh, 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 you know call by uh, the chief minister see i think i think it resonates in punjab i mean i it would be unfair to say that the population of the entire state but i think there is a significant uh, section of population in punjab where this kind of a you know a supremacism or you know xenophobic uh, uh, you know uh, exaltation is does does resonate you know chani being like a uh, political operator maybe picks up this strand uh, which is uh, prevalent in punjab and you could my last point on is that we could just the popular culture is a good barometer of you know uh, this kind of underlying sentiment in the society right like say for, uh, for example uh, you know you would never see that kind of a, uh, you know a popular culture uh, uh, what do you call production in terms of you know in popular music in terms of cinema drama uh, in terms of you know the social media youtubes uh, uh, instagrams and all that but this kind of casting the working north indian migrant labor as a uh, you know as some kind of uh, outsiders uh is quite dominant in the punjab popular culture you know especially contrasting in fact i was frankly astonished uh, when a lot of people and some of them from punjab you know kind of highlighted the uh, the songs and uh, dance where this kind of uh, you know quote unquote some kind of a pseudo racist uh, uh, superiority is almost considered par for course in the popular discourse which is quite unfortunate and i hope that you know the people there in the state uh, seriously introspect and as abhishek said i think this uh, politicization this i don't think so anybody who was criticizing it or condemning this kind of a statement by uh, funny uh, is uh you know i mean it's it's not politicization according to me it's it's a problem which is uh, far far deeper and uh, last point on it is that i'm just little worried because maybe uh, you you saw priyanka gandhi uh, who was standing next to him lustily cheering on has uh, the chief minister made this remark uh, we need to say uh, see this kind of a public display of approval in conjunction with congress's own recent ideological pivot right from from the rahul gandhi's uh, tweet uh, you know just like you know trying to uh, 
you know, ride on uh, some kind of an imagined uh, uh, Tamil exceptionalism as mainstream. I mean, which is not even true in the case of Tamil Nadu itself. You know, I would still think that uh, DMK winning political power doesn't essentially mean that uh, the kind of you know uh, ideology that they represent is. Uh, uh, mainstream, even in the Tamil society, actually, or at least that's what I would like to believe. But, you know, the Congress's own recent ideological predilections and picking up somebody like Chani, who's probably, uh, you know, like you, you could see the remarks of even the Congress's own people who are quitting the party in Punjab, right? Like he was just picked out of uh, obscurity, picked out of nowhere and, uh, you know, catapulted as the CM, right? Actually, so, so you know, whether whether it was just like one quote unquote a social justice card or it was a part of a larger uh, ideological pivot of the Congress party, something we need to really uh, carefully watch out for as things unfold actually. So that's the point that I just wanted. I think no, uh, Rohit made a yeah, yeah. very good point. He said that yeah. the Amrinder Congress was a very distinct flavor of Congress to the larger INC which is at the national level. But now the national and the state party is in sync, basically. What, yeah. Whatever that, uh, I mean, their new federalism-based avatar is or whatever. <laughs> no, that, that's actually, I mean, a recurring point that he makes, right? I mean, we did one uh, podcast sometime back, I mean, maybe a year ago on the future of the Indian National Congress. And even there too, I think Rohit made the point that uh, uh, Rahul Gandhi is actually very SJW very, very left of, you know, whatever people kind of consider him to be, right? And so this kind of uh, uh, ties into, you know, his uh, regular stuff, right? I mean, whatever he thinks and feels. No, I think, uh, Roshan, actually, uh, my impression, at least, you know, like at least a couple of years back, I think the Karnataka election was the wake-up call in the sense that where uh, probably for the first time, you know, Congress kind of played that card, which kind of backfired largely. I think it was very poor strategy that happened in Karnataka. But I would still, uh, st I was, I mean, I would still think that, you know, if they have a left of center or even a left orientation in economic uh, policies, right? Like say, I mean, which which is what the traditional economic policy as well, like large scale redistribution, you know, that's that is par for the course, right? Like in a country like India. Uh, certainly, there will always be a, a you know sufficient uh, constituency for a economic uh, uh, rhetoric of that nature, right? But but I think like we are looking at something which is much more uh, concerning and uh, far serious. Is this uh, on? I think at least there was some minimum uh, consensus among the national parties actually about the uh, conception of the nation, whether you know. Yeah. yeah. It's a constitutional uh, or whether it's a, a you know civilizational based state. I think that is like something which, which can be contested in the uh, yeah. public debate, and I think that pendulum will also keep swinging uh, uh, based on how the political trajectory of the country is there at a particular point of time or how it evolves. But I think there is now a fundamental shift in the way even the question of nationhood is being. Uh, uh, viewed by the Congress yes. uh, party, and uh, uh, it's surprising that you know I, I, there are these, there is this kind of you know right liberal uh, faction of uh, Congress party that would always portray you know let's look at Punjab where we have this very purposeful patriotic uh, CM who comes from an army background and that used to be their national security credentials vis-a-vis -vis, uh, 
BJP, right? Actually, they seem to have completely given up on that one, like by the way in which Amrinder Singh uh, was thrown away. And uh, now, you know, even as public humiliation that he apparently refused to, which, which I think is completely untrue. I, I don't think so. I mean, Amrinder had certain qualities, but I would, I would not think that he would have lost power over refusing not to give uh, farmers free power or something like that, you know. So that kind of uh, repeated humiliation uh, of a very uh, senior leader, I think it's, uh, we need to really watch the space uh, is my sense, actually. Yeah. No, a couple of quick points on based on what you said. One is that I think the Congress party has crossed that line uh, that you mentioned sometime back itself, right, in terms of the sovereignty of the nation and so on, right? I mean, look at look at the recent, like, whatever, you know, uh, uh, they, their reaction to the Singapore Prime Minister's remarks, as we discussed as well, right? I mean, finding uh, finding alliances and, you know, uh, people uh, to make your points outside of India. I mean, that's just, uh, yeah, that's just crazy. And also, I mean, do check out the episode we did on Punjab um, sometime back, maybe a couple of months back with Rohit, a very comprehensive deep dive on, you know, uh, the various factors influencing the politics of the state. And also, I mean, we discussed this uh, yesterday with Rohit as well on the live stream. So both of these episodes should be of uh, interest. Uh, moving on, the Delhi High Court on Friday passed an order restraining historians from publishing defamatory content against uh, the historian Vikram Sampath. Uh, historians Audrey Trishke, Ananya Chakravarti, and Rohit Chopra wrote a letter to the Royal Historical Society raising allegations of plagiarism against Vikram Sampath with respect to his biography of Veer Savarkar. Justice Amit Bansal noted that the continued publication of the said letter has been causing considerable damage to Dr. Sampath's reputation and career. The suit also refers to some alleged defamatory tweets made by Abhishek Bakshi and Ashok Swain. The suit uh, seeks damage of rupees 2 crore from the said defendants. Uh, now, we did a recent episode with uh, Dr. Sampath as well. It was, uh, you know, an amazing episode where he did cover some of these points on, you know, who constitutes a historian and who are these people who kind of give these certificates and so on. So, uh, uh, you know, you can hear it from him directly. But Prasanna, I mean, it's good to see that we're also fighting back, right? I mean, I think uh, it, it's good to see that, uh, you know, the suit has been filed and uh, uh, there's some cost to, you know, doing these ridiculous things. <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, uh, see, uh, uh, there is this uh, Sampath book on uh, Savarkar, you know, uh, like the cat from the pigeons, right? Like it was it was a masterly, scholarly work with uh, such copious uh, reference and it was a formidable work of uh, scholarship, right? Like, and I don't think so. It's been adequately countered or challenged in a scholastic uh, way so far, actually. So obviously there is this campaign of uh, Clumney, and, uh, you know, kind of a malicious campaign that has been uh, launched uh, against him, you know, which kind of, uh, uh, you know, attempts to undermine uh, the enormous uh, work of scholarship in, in these kind of, uh, you know, in th through this malicious campaign. It's good that, um, uh, you know, like basically one of the... Constant refrain of this left-wing ecosystem was that you know you fight ideas with ideas, you fight books with books, uh, and uh, obviously that doesn't uh, clearly seem to be the case here. Where uh, you know they've kind of resorted to uh, this level of uh, uh, 
malicious disinformation i think it's good uh, that he's taking the uh, legal route but i mean uh, it's it's good signaling you know and uh, it's good signaling and it's it's very important that you know the left ecosystem also once in a while gets this uh, clear signal that uh, they can't just get away with uh, you know this kind of uh, malicious uh, campaign and i hope that you know there are uh, people within that ecosystem who introspect and uh, uh, really look at uh, huge decline in the quality of scholarship also from them especially uh, i think like till till you know the marxist ideology was uh, dominant and when ussr had that kind of apparatus and uh, institutional capability to influence academics and uh, through you know various means and ways i think the left had a certain uh, uh, you know ability uh, to uh, produce scholarship though it is always based on certain framework and theories uh, which were developed elsewhere but i think in the post 90s right like as, as uh, we became a unipolar world and now a multilateral world and you know this entire uh, technology disruption digital disruption you know the economic models actually you know this entire thing of uh, left socialism versus uh, right capitalism all those kind of binaries have collapsed right they just don't have they don't seem to have any uh, uh, intellectual uh, tools to handle this kind of uh, collapse of these binaries as i put it actually you know so basically uh, you know i think they've just gone berserk yeah yeah no for sure i think uh, yeah also do check out the episode with dr vikram sampath it was uh, really fascinating uh, and very very comprehensive episode as well um and right, moving on in some global news tensions are escalating in the russia ukraine issue with uh, two soldiers being killed in a shelling attack a full military mobilization was ordered on saturday by separatist leaders in eastern ukraine us vice president kamala harris said on saturday that the world has arrived at to quote a decisive moment in history she also added that the us and its allies will impose significant and unprecedented economic costs eu nations have asked their citizens to leave ukraine amid strong fears over the possible russian invasion abhishek uh, yeah i mean uh, we we covered a bit of this uh, last week as well uh, but you know we we have seen some remarks uh, from the us uh, both the vice president and the president as well right yeah so i guess this will be a recurring topic for some time to come right for our weekly but over this last week uh, so president biden was making some remarks from the white house where he was asked uh, so whether he thinks that uh, or what does he think about russia's actions to come and he said he believes putin has made the decision to attack like he totally believes that an attack is imminent uh and regarding uh kamala harris i think she was attending a security conference in munich where various uh, leaders from various countries have assembled to discuss uh, this issue and so obviously the word going out is that you know they are still trying to do diplomacy with russia and a uh, heavy sanctions will be imposed i think overnight an interesting statement has come from the ukrainian leader where he said that basically uh countries need to tell beforehand what the sanctions will be you cannot just say that 
you will impose sanctions when Russia attacks, you need to tell exactly what those sanctions will be. And so I, th I thought that kind of made a lot of sense, right? Rather than sort of empty threats, uh, the countries who are opposing Russia, like the US, UK, or the EU countries, they should probably list out exactly what repercussions will be. Uh, I think I also read that there are uh, plans for, you know, personal sanctions against Putin, right? And not just at the country level, but also at the uh, leader level. Uh, so I think the situation continues to remain pretty uh, uh, precarious there. And uh, yeah, I guess for India, uh, uh, it continues to be wait and watch. I think I was just reading some interesting uh, remarks made by the foreign minister on uh, these uh, surrounding issues to some think tank, right? Where they were questioned, or he was questioned on things like uh, the West is supporting India on China. So why isn't India taking a stand which is pro-West in this, uh, you know, Russia-Ukraine issue? So he he quite explained it really well as to the differences in the situation and the differences in which, you know, the various things affect India. So yeah, uh, interesting times right now. A couple of interesting uh, comments uh, on YouTube. Uh, so Tej Choksi says, if Putin takes action, wonder how the India-Russia relationship will evolve, particularly with sensitive technologies like nuclear submarines, where India needs help and the West is less forthcoming. Any comments? So I think the India-Russia relationship is also sort of undergoing certain strain, right? So uh, as over the last few years, Russia has gone quite close to uh, China. And also recently, I think, invited Imran Khan over. Uh, so I, I guess Russia does also see that India is in a bit of a tight situation with regard to the various balancing acts that India has to make. So yeah, I think the India-Russia relationship is pretty, uh, I would say, I mean, I mean, it's pretty sensitive right now. So uh, India has to play its cards pretty carefully because ultimately as a country, we are reliant on both US and Russia to certain extent, right? For our defense needs. Uh, so that sort of balancing act and playing it very carefully will continue for India. Yeah, it's um, it's it's funny how this whole non-aligned sort of a movement is coming back, right? I mean, uh, in some sense, and we're going to discuss that uh, when we talk about uh, you know Nepal uh, adopting UPI as well. And this is a point that uh, Balaji Srinivasan often makes, right? So. Um, uh, so for for you for India to become like the third option in some sense, um, well, uh, Nepal will soon become the first country to deploy UPI. NPCI International Payments Limited has joined hands with Gateway Payments Service and Manam Infotech to provide the service in Nepal. GPS is the authorized payment system operator in Nepal, and Manam Infotech will deploy unified payments interface in that country. The NPCI stated that the technology will play a pivotal role in transforming the digital economy of the neighboring country. Well, Nirav, this is really significant, right? I mean, uh, um, yeah. 
So absolutely. So one is see, India has done uh, has built a very good tech stack, uh, right from uh, UPI as well as so. This is the first kind of export of our own tech stack. Uh, we've had uh, great technology like either like say for Aadhaar or Arogya Setu or all our digi locker for all our digital things, right? So I think uh, now you see that other countries are recognizing it. Nepal being like a friendly neighbor and a much smaller size country, much smaller economy. Uh, but Nepal has a lot of uh, Nepali citizens who are working in India, right? Uh, because of our treaty where there is free movement of labor. So what this allows first is just like UPI where uh, any one of y'all can transfer money to each other uh, directly from your bank account using your phone. This allows some cross-border payments between say India and Nepal. There's a lot of trade, etc., also which happens. But so this is one part. Second is for using this technology. Nepali citizens, Nepali residents can transfer Nepalese rupee between uh, two people themselves, right? So uh, this is recognition of the tech stack which India has developed. Uh, there is also in the pipeline uh, something with Bhutan, uh, something with Singapore as well. So Singapore has uh, these other payment apps uh, called PayNow and PayRao. Uh, they are probably talking of integration with uh, India's UPI. So for example, me sitting in Singapore, I can transfer money to my parents uh, digitally seamlessly. Uh, whereas right now, if I do a bank transfer, it takes two days, right? So I think uh, this is a big recognition for uh, India's tech achievements. Hopefully this is first of many to come. So I think India can help a lot of other developing countries. What has happened is uh, a lot of the developing countries in uh, parts of Asia, as well as Africa or like Latin America, they only look at like say, US or like China or like Russia for their tech requirements, right? And now India is a significant player. And uh, this goes on to say that there is a lot more trust uh, in our systems, as well as uh, like, so trust even from like a data security standpoint, and not being like, uh, uh, being more of an ally rather than a potential enemy. And uh, also uh, trust in the form of that the technology delivers. So I think both these sides, uh, India has done well. Hopefully this is first of many. I think this is like a nice, uh, you yep. could say like a test version and uh, we roll this out in many more countries. I think there was some kind of protocol on remittances from Singapore as well, right? I mean, uh, yes, a yes, few yes, months yes. back. Yeah, yeah. So that's no, what I think, being talked yeah. about. That's next in the pipeline. It is there. Yeah. No, I think remittances are a, are a big use case uh, on this front. And uh, uh, there's a there's a piece by Balaji Srinivasan on you know uh, why India stack should be made global and how we should add crypto onto it and stuff. And one of the things that he talks about is evolving neutral protocols, right? So uh, offer countries like a an alternate uh, so that they're not beholden to either American or kind of Chinese uh, um, corporates basically, right? And uh, they can they can have more locally operated tech platforms and. Um, you know, national digital currencies and so on and so forth. So yeah, that's definitely a good article if you want to check out the yeah. future and global potential of the UPI stack, right? India also, stack rather. Making another point. Yeah. Say for example, today Visa and MasterCard, uh, they charge quite exorbitantly yeah. for basically making a ledger transfer, right? And especially when it is cross-border, also there is the aspect of uh, what exchange rate are you hit at, etc. Right? So I think uh, they have a fantastic backbone, a fantastic piece of infrastructure, uh, but they charge maybe too much for it versus what PI, which is basically free for Indians domestically. So I think 
this is creating like another similarly in china you have alipay and wechat pay etc right you have their payment apps so i think this is another competitive uh, player which has come in the place and uh, the recognition that we are getting that's great yeah uh, for sure i would definitely agree on all of those things um well that's a wrap from us here on bharat varta weekly uh, this was a short crisp uh, uh, you know uh, weekly compared to the previous couple of ones and uh, uh, next week we have a very interesting uh, a podcast a very comprehensive discussion on india and west asia relations uh, with uh, you know i spoke to dr alvet uh, nimtojom who is uh, who teaches at the symbiosis institute of, institute of for international studies and he's an expert on west asia we spoke about plenty of things i mean there was the uae trade agreement that was recently signed a right, couple of days back as well um, spoke about national security and uh, you know um, some of the naval cooperation in, in the indian ocean and plenty of other things right so um, definitely a very interesting uh, podcast on uh, geopolitics do check it out well thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, everyone let us know on social media what do you think about uh, the content that we put out and uh, we'll see you next week thank you so much